0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today's show features my friend, Justin M., whose alcoholism nearly ended both his marriage and his career as an airline pilot before he got sober a little over two years ago. Raised in a family rife with alcoholics, Justin's role model was a father who suffered with alcoholism and co-occurring mental health issues, and ultimately committed suicide. Though warned by his mother about the family proclivity for alcoholism, Justin continued to ramp up his drinking throughout high school and college. By the time his career as an airline pilot took off, so did his drinking. To quell any concerns from fellow pilots and crews that he might be drinking too much, Justin became a solitary drinker. He never drank on the job, but his after hours and days off were spent drinking in hotel rooms and at home. Still, he functioned well enough to start a family and keep his job amidst umpteen promises that he would cut back and control his drinking. But those promises turned hollow as each attempt to stop inevitably ended with still more drinking. When he first found A.A., Justin made a half-hearted attempt to get sober, but four months in and none of the work done, Justin figured he'd gotten all he could from A.A. and decided he could drink again like a normal man. With that first drink, his disease resurfaced with vengeance and his life went into a tailspin. Justin hit his bottom when his wife expelled him from their home. Fortunately, he turned to his employer and pilots union for help and was whisked away into an inpatient rehab facility, followed by intensive outpatient treatment. Though his medical certification was revoked and he could no longer fly, Justin persevered in treatment and subsequently began his serious work in Alcoholics Anonymous, replete with sponsor, meetings, book study, prayer, and service. As sober days passed, his accountability to his wife, his program, his employer, and the FAA were reestablished, while he concurrently fulfilled the rigorous requirements to reinstate his certification to fly. Two years later, Justin has become firmly entrenched in AA and is a regular member of several meetings I attend. He does Zoom meetings and live meetings wherever he travels. He has a sponsor to whom he remains close and sponsors other men to keep himself sober. The gifts that Justin has realized from the program include getting his marriage back intact and earning his job back as a trusted pilot for a major airline. Justin's enthusiasm for AA and his infectious smile naturally draw newcomers and old-timers into his life. His story is timeless and continues to generate hope, especially for those in his profession who reach out for his help. His two years of experience shared within the fellowship are invaluable to those who want it. So it's with real gratitude that I offer you this exceptional episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Please enjoy the next hour and 10 minutes with my fine friend and AA brother, Justin M.
1: Hi, my name is Justin and I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Justin. Hey, Howard. Thanks so much for joining me today on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this day and you and I had the opportunity to just come out of a meeting, a men's step study meeting. So it's really kind of cool to do an interview right after that.
1: Yeah, it's a great room of guys. I try to do the, all the meetings are fantastic.
0: Yeah, they really are. And this meeting today was especially big. We normally don't get as many people, but it's a hybrid meeting too, where there's the Zoom and then there's the room full of men and we have a big mic and a little TV camera. So it works out really well. Right. That's how I got sober, was on Zoom. That was your first AA meeting, was on Zoom?
1: Wasn't my first, I went to a few live meetings before the pandemic, but when I came in this time, I got sober June 10th of 20, so two weeks from Today would be two years.
0: Wow, congratulations on that.
1: But yeah, there's a few of us that when we came in to the rooms, it was all on Zoom, which was kind of surreal. Sitting at home on your couch with a bunch of people that you don't know, a bunch of talking heads, trying to figure out a program that you don't really know about.
0: That's curious. I've often wondered, talking with people who got sober using Zoom, what that was like because AA has always been very much of a face-to-face, live, eyeball-to-eyeball type thing. And yet, I probably went to eight or ten Zoom meetings a week. It was so convenient. And to this day, I still go to a meeting in London, a meeting in LA. Uh, I've been to meetings in all other parts of the world. And it's very, very cool to do that. But I also miss the human knee-to-knee type, you know.
1: Yeah, 100%. And that's just it. And that's what a few
0: of us have talked
1: about that got sober during that. Is that, thank God for those Zoom meetings. I mean, I was so desperate; I needed something. Mm-hmm. And I still do a bunch of Zoom meetings as well when I'm at work in a hotel room. Uh, it's definitely better than nothing, but the real thing is always the best.
0: Well, that's why I was so glad that you were able to do this today because it's a live action between the two of us. Oftentimes, I'd say of all the interviews I've done to date, about 80 of them, the vast majority have been by Zoom because I started doing this during the pandemic. And but when I can get together with people face-to-face, I like to do it. Sometimes Zoom is actually a more convenient option for people whose schedules just don't fit, but uh, it works out very, very well. So you came to AA for the first time in the middle or the beginning part of the pandemic. Was this the first time you'd ever gone to AA?
1: No, I actually, uh, this is my second time in AA. I had a a brief stint of sobriety. I I had about four months um, in 2019, mm. um, kind of evaluating the program, if you will. Mm-hmm. Went to a few meetings. I didn't go to very many. Um, I had a sponsor, but mm-hmm. I didn't really work this step. So I don't really remember if we worked any steps. We would get together every now and then to read out of the big book, but I really wasn't taking it too seriously. I was trying to figure out how I could stop going to AA meetings <laughs> and stop doing steps because I didn't know that I fully qualified. You know? oh, yeah. I was comparing out basically every time I went to a meeting.
0: Well, most people don't just show up in an AA meeting. It's not in, Intuitively, it's not the place you think of going if right. you're not already engaged with alcohol or drugs to some extent. So what was going on that made you even go for the first time around?
1: You hit the nail on the head. It wasn't like I suddenly woke up and said, I think I need to go to an AA mm-hmm. meeting. I was actually in a huge fight with my wife who was insisting that I do something about my drinking. And I had known for years that I was developing a problem. I came from a long line of alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And I started... Checking off a lot of the same boxes that I'd seen my dad check off. Mm-hmm. I was drinking the same way, the same patterns, doing a lot of the same stuff. And uh, I could not stop drinking mm-hmm. and I could not control it. It culminated the first time in a huge fight with my wife the night before my stepsister's wedding. We got in a huge fight. I couldn't even tell you what it was about. Woke up the next morning. She insisted that I not drink at the wedding. And of course, there was no way that I could not not drink at a wedding. Mm-hmm. And I proceeded to drink more than probably anybody there. And on the drive home that night, I just opened up and told her, I'm an alcoholic. I can't control my drinking. I couldn't not drink today. And I told her that I wouldn't. I clearly can't control this. And then I woke up the next morning, terribly hungover and drove to the 12 and 12. And it was like an out of body
0: experience. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Was your response to her that night telling her that you were an alcoholic, did that come out of some place that you really knew you needed help? Or was it your way of getting out of that particular situation?
1: No, by that time, I I mean, I was terrified uh, because I had this thing that I could not control and it was getting worse and I was scared. And so at a time of vulnerability, basically, um, I just opened up and told her I, I don't have control of this. It's." killing me, and I need to do something about it, and she was basically like, yeah. So how long were you guys married at that time? At that time, it would have been 11 years.
0: At what point during your marriage did she start questioning the amount that you were drinking or maybe pointing out to you that maybe she thought you had a problem?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, you know, because we started out drinking together, and I started out, I kind of feel like I was drinking as much as my peers, not really, I mean, I was always drinking a lot, but so was everybody else around me. Sure. In my late 20s and early 30s, and it was about the time that my son was born. in 2012 Mm -hmm. she backed off right she's a mom now and she's not she doesn't want to go out she doesn't want to go do all this stuff she's a mom she's got a baby at home and I just wanted to keep going and so it kind of started getting bad there that's when I really started noticing like I I started putting a lot of controls in place Mm -hmm. I'm only going to drink on these days I'm only going to drink this never that always this much never that much and it just kept getting worse how did that work for you not great um there were times you know it's The problem was there were times that I could control it, which gave me the false sense that I can always control it, right? Mm -hmm. When my second daughter was born, we have three kids. When my middle child was born, I remember we went to a lake house over in Austin, and her family doesn't drink Mm -hmm. at all. And I was drinking a lot, and I was just always out of control every night. And on the drive home, I don't know if she was reading a book or listening to a podcast. I was thinking as we were driving, like, wow, my drinking is really eating out of control. And I'm not saying this to her. I'm just thinking it on the drive home with two little kids in the back. And I don't know what she was listening to or reading, but she looked over to me out of the blue and just said, I think you're an alcoholic. And it hit me pretty hard because, I mean, I was thinking that, but I had not I had never said anything to her about it. So
0: what year was that, that that happened, do you
1: think? This was 2017, something like that. Okay, so you were
0: still a good three years away from stopping at that point.
1: Yeah, and so she said that and, you know, I kind of fought against it and said, no, I'm just a big drinker, but everybody in my family is, right? Right. Um, And that's just kind of how I was raised and that's what I do. And then I would just always turn it back on her. You used to drink a lot, too, and now you're just a stick in the mud, right? basically.
0: So the cat's out of the bag for you, Yeah. but at the same time, you're trying to justify to her why you're doing what you're doing. Exactly. And
1: that's when I really started having the inner turmoil that I I remember of to the outside world wanting to present, I have this life and I can control it, and inside knowing I'm rapidly losing control of this thing.
0: Yeah, I get that.
1: My dad was an alcoholic my entire life. Mm -hmm. He ended up committing suicide. And how old were you
0: when he did that?
1: Um, let's see, I think 36.
0: Okay, so you were you were an adult.: Yeah, at I was that an time. adult, yeah.
1: um, but that's what my wife always she always knew that she could get my attention when she would say, "You're just like your dad, you're turning into your dad." and she was right, yeah, and that's what really finally got the light to start going off for me. It took years, um, and then I finally conceded, you know,
0: she is right. That must have made you feel horribly indignant.
1: Yeah, it was a wake-up call for sure. It was definitely a blow to my my pride and my ego, right?
0: Yeah. What was the aftermath of each time she did that? And And did you swear off at that point only to pick up again later? What were those intervals after each one of those confrontations?
1: I can't tell you the amount of times I quit drinking, or would monitor my drinking, or I'd go on a 30-day program, or I'd say, okay, no liquor in the house, Mm -hmm. or I'm not going to drink at work, or, you know, it was just, it was always a period of dry spells followed by worse drinking, just like the book says. Um, And it just... It it never stuck. I always forgot why I made the rules in the first place.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Alcoholism makes us forget things, doesn't it? Yeah,
1: and it would drive her crazy, right? And she, I'm sure, felt insane um, because we would have the same conversations over and over. So every
0: time you quit, you
1: were sure
0: to tell her that you had quit?
1: Yeah, well, I never fully, I never quit. I never told her that I was going to be finished for good. Except for that, the first time in AA, right? So before my first time in AA for years, for two, three, four years, was, hey, I'm going to do the dry January thing. Or, hey, I'm not going to drink whiskey anymore. I'm only going to drink light beers Mm -hmm. or whatever it was. It was just constantly reshuffling the same problem.
0: So do you have uh, any idea when it was that she gave up on you, gave up on listening to what you were telling her about when you were going to stop and how you were going to stop? Or did she not reach that point?
1: No, she definitely did. So I I came into AA the first time in March of 2019. I got four months sober. Uh-huh. And then I think I always knew I was going to drink again. I was always looking for a reason to leave, right? And maybe I've learned enough now to control my drinking and maybe I'm not really like these people. and was I ever really that bad? And all these questions. And so we went on vacation in Colorado and we were going to go meet up with some friends at a brewery. Mm -hmm. Well, I went on vacation feeling great, checking in with my sponsor. And then all of a sudden it was just like, I woke up and I'm like, Hey, when we go meet up with our friends, I think I'm going to have a couple of beers. And she looked at me like, really? And I'm like, yeah, I think I've been sober long enough. Now I can probably handle it. And her first reaction was relief. She's like, I think that would be awesome. If you think that you can drink like a normal person, I would love to be able to do happy hours and have a normal drinking husband. And in my mind, fireworks are going off, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm back.
0: Yeah, I get that.
1: And so I called my sponsor and said, hey, I'm going to take a break from this AA thing and try some controlled drinking, right? And I just remember his reaction was, great, I hope it works out for you, and if not, you have my number. Uh And that was it, and that first night, it was right back. I was just completely off to the races that very first night. Was it like you'd never stopped? It was worse. It was like my brain was trying to make up for lost time. It was, you know, we went to the bar, and I told her I was just gonna have a few drinks, but really I was doing all the alcoholic tricks, like I'd say, I'm going to go to the bathroom and I'd order a beer and slam it real quick. And then I would go order two beers, but drink one really fast and just bring another one outside. So really at the bar, I probably had six, seven drinks, but she thinks I only had three. And then, yeah, one of the lowlights of that day was going back to the rental house that we had in colorado Mm -hmm. and they had an owner's cabinet up above the refrigerator and my very first night of drinking after four months i'm breaking into the owner's (laughs) liquor cabinet and stealing their booze and it was like right off the bat it was exciting and it was terrifying i'm like oh my gosh nothing's changed
0: so you were looking at yourself doing this you knew what was going on as you were doing it oh yeah
1: Yeah, and there was nothing that I could do to stop it. I was just in that place where I could not imagine my life with alcohol, and I could not imagine my life without it.
0: So the fact that you had been in the program for four months, and you were working with a sponsor, had you already covered the things that contradicted what you were doing? In other words, had you already dismissed what it said in the big book about the fact that if we don't do what we need to do, we will drink again? And some of the cautionary tales that are in there about being careful.
1: Yeah. I mean, some of that stuff came up, but I don't know that I was really fully enmeshed in the AA program to even know what it really was talking about. Uh Like when I was meeting with my sponsor, I think I was really doing it, just going through the motions. Not really. I was not really that into it. In fact, when I went back out, I threw away my first big book, my (laughs) 12 steps and 12, I got it all out of the house. I never wanted to see it to be reminded of it because I think it was the addict part of my brain saying, Mm -hmm get that out of here. We don't ever want to look at this again to ruin our drinking. And I did the best that I could to completely forget everything I had
0: learned or been told. So that head full of AA and that belly full of booze didn't do you very much good, did it?
1: No. And it just got worse. And so to your original question of did my wife ever give up? She did. You know, I went back out in August and uh, that was August of 19. Mm -hmm. And drank all through the holidays and it kept getting worse and worse. And then Mm. it had gotten to the point where it was not only made up for lost time, it was like trying to, I was trying to like drink enough to make up for all the four months that I did and drink. And it just got completely out of control. And then when the pandemic hit, I stopped flying Mm -hmm. and I was sitting at home with nothing to do except worry and stress and drink. And that was it. That was the final straw. And she Mm. said, you've got to do something about this. I can't sit around and watch you drink like this. And that was it. That was, that was what it took.
0: What did you tell her early on when she told you that before you actually went to AA the second time?
1: You know, to tell you the truth, I don't really remember fighting that much about it. She just got to the point where she was just, she wasn't even mad. She was just disappointed and she Uh was just giving up, right? And then the, the final straw was she just kicked me out of the house and said, if you can't figure this out, you're not welcome back. So how
0: long were you kicked out before you went back to AA? Uh, one night. One
1: night. One night. That was, that was all it took. <laughs> That's all it took. That's all yeah. it took was one night. And because I knew she was right. I, you know, that whole eight months that I'd gone back out after that first stint, I just knew that I was going to end up back in AA. Really, I didn't know if I was going to end up in AA or if I was going to end up in prison or dead or without a job or divorced. And of all of these scenarios, going back into AA seemed like the easier, softer way. And so what I did was I reached out to my pilots union Uh um, who I'd contacted a few times over the years about their substance abuse program. Um, You know, during that interim before I stopped drinking, I knew that I had a problem. And so I would call and kind of audit the program Mm -hmm. and say, Hey, let's just say I thought I might have a problem. What does that look like? And my representative over there was always so kind and gracious. He would talk to me every time I called and explain the steps and There was just the stigma of I did not want the FAA up in my business. I didn't want my company in my business. I did not want to have to jump through all the hoops. Mm -hmm. But after I had seen myself get sober for four months and the ease of which I just walked right back out of the rooms, it terrified me. And so I wanted that accountability and I got it. I'm accountable to a lot of people now and it's working. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of work and there's a lot of people that I have to report to, but it, it helps, right? because I'm not just accountable to myself or my wife.
0: So you turned yourself into AA and you turned yourself into the union and the program that they have for... Right. It's called the Hims program. I've heard of that.
1: We are subject to random tests, right? So it's a DOT job. And so um, sometimes when you show up to work, either before or after yeah. your shift, they'll either give you a breathalyzer test or a uh, urinalysis there's no testing of every single flight that you have to blow into a breathalyzer or anything like that.
0: I'd always thought there was a, a new protocol where a pilot could not step into the cockpit without having one of those things you blow in. in the- <laughs> a blow and go for the airplane. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know why I thought
1: that. No, there's there's not that yet. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, <yet, yet. laughs> yeah. I want to take you back and, and visit your earlier life. You said your dad was an alcoholic. What was your mom saying about it when you were a kid? Do you remember?
1: Yeah, you know, I remember my childhood starting out fairly normal. Uh, I don't remember a lot of drama. I have one younger brother, he's four years younger. My dad was an oil field guy. Uh, We started out in New Mexico. My parents were high school sweethearts and got married very young and then had me very young. My dad was an engineer Mm -hmm. and every time he would get a promotion, we would move. And so I just remember moving a lot. I think we moved six times. When I was growing up. So it was constantly relocating. And it was as I got older, maybe around 10 or 11, that I noticed my parents fought a lot about my dad's drinking. And my dad wasn't violent when I was young. I don't remember him being super angry when I was little. But as I got older, he started getting—you just never really knew what you were going to get with him. Mm -hmm. And he would either be over-the-top, huggy and jokey and kind of silly, or he would just blow a gasket Mm -hmm. and have to leave and— I just remember it was always about his drinking. It was just constant fighting about his drinking Coors Lights. That's just, when I think of my dad, I think of Coors Lights. Uh, From the time I was a little kid, like, hey, bud, go get me a a full one of these. You know, and he'd give me the empty, and I'd throw it away, and I'd bring him a full beer. I just remember he always had a Coors Light and a Marlboro in his hand, and that was just kind of what he did.
0: So as a little kid doing that, getting your dad the beer, did your little kid mind ever put two and two together, say... My dad's acting this way because of the beer he's drinking? No, not until I got older. What did you think when you were a little kid when that was all going on?
1: I don't really remember thinking anything, right? I was just kind of oblivious and probably just wanted to go do my own thing and not really paying attention to what he was doing. Hmm. Um, I remember he would give me sips and I would try it and I'd be like, oh, I'm never going to drink that. It's disgusting, (laughs) you know? I would throw cigarettes in the trash because I knew that those were bad for him and that would make him mad. And it was just always present like when i think of my childhood i just always think about his drinking my mom fighting about it he would go out he became a sales rep and when we moved back to houston was when i was in high school Uh and he would just be gone all hours of the night doing god knows what entertaining clients and it was just a huge source of contention in my house constantly
0: sounds like it and the moving probably wasn't helping matters either was it
1: no, you know, as a child, you know, you're selfish. You're just focused about yourself. I just remember constantly starting over making friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very tough on my mom. She hated it. Constantly relocating, getting, you know, me and my brother re-enrolled in schools and all that stuff. And it was like every time you'd go make a group of friends, hey, pack your bags, we're leaving again. It was like, ah, oh, we just That's got here, tough. you know. Yeah. yeah, it took its toll on everybody.
0: My parents did that when I was a kid, too, uh, at least two or three times. And it was always tough.
1: Well, the thing with us was it was always oil-filled people in oil-filled towns, and they move uh-huh. a lot. So it's kind of like being in the military. You just, you get very good at meeting new people because a lot of people are new. You know what I mean? So yeah. that made it a little bit easier.
0: I'm curious about when you were a kid and you were seeing the behavior and your dad let you taste the beers and you think, yuck, I'm never going to drink this stuff. Was there ever any self-talk when you were a kid about, I'm not going to be like my dad or I'm not going to drink? Did that ever occur to you? I don't know. I don't remember ever saying that. In fact, it was kind of the opposite,
1: like kind of like... Like, that's what I see my dad and, you know, his friends and everybody in my family um, doing. I can't wait till I'm old enough to do that. But then I would also get conflicting messages from my mom who would say, just so you know, your dad struggles with drinking. His brother struggles with drinking. Your grandfather struggles with drinking. You're probably going to be an alcoholic. Take it easy. And then she would go buy us beers as we got Mm. older. So there's always this double standard.
0: I didn't, it was always confusing. So when did you first start? drinking?
1: Probably 15 or 16 in high school.
0: In high school. Yeah. Were you the guy behind it or were you just in a crowd that was already doing it?
1: Uh, both. Everybody I was around was drinking, um, but I was always that guy that wanted to drink as much as possible. Like it was not, I would always count the number of drinks that I had and I was always, it was like a badge of honor if I could drink more than everybody else. Yeah. It was about that time though in, in high school that my dad's drinking really got out of control and... They were sending him off to treatment. There was an attempted suicide. Mm. And my home life was so chaotic that, you know, it's, I found that if I went out and I drank heavily, I could forget all that stuff. And I could be Mm. funny and Mm -hmm. I could talk to girls and it was fun. And I would forget about all that. And so that's really kind of when it, my whole pattern started. So that was going on
0: in the midst of high school?
1: Right. All my friends, you know, we we all drank, um, but everybody got good grades, and nobody was getting in trouble, and, you know, I had a really good group of friends.
0: Were you a blackout drinker, or did you remember what you
1: would do the night before? I would usually remember. Most of my drinking, 99% of it was beer. That was just, you know, that's what I saw other guys doing, and that's what manly men did. And, you know, mm-hmm. when I drank liquor, I would drink it like beer, and it never ended well. <laughs> and so drinking beer
0: kind of forced me to slow down a little bit. Were you a functional drinker when you were in high school? I mean, did you get decent grades and, and stay out of trouble? Yeah, I got good grades. I played golf on the
1: golf team, and I was very focused on what I wanted to do after high school. And, um, but I was very capable of going and twisting off on the weekends. You hadn't yet labeled yourself an
0: alcoholic. You were the guy who could go out and party and have a great time. Yeah, I was a party
1: guy. It was all fun.
0: Yeah, so you could still do well. Right. Sometimes that makes it harder for people to stop because... The very fact that they can go out and still perform at work or at school or in their relationships made all the difference.
1: Well, and that's really kind of what kept me trapped for so long is how can I be an alcoholic? Look at my
0: life, you know? (laughs) You graduated high school. What were the next several years like in your life?
1: Yeah, so I left high school and I went off to college. Um, I always wanted to be an airline pilot. And so I moved out to Daytona Beach, Florida and started flying. And I got an aeronautical science degree. Uh, it was great, I got to fly, and I got credits for all the different licenses and ratings that I would need to get, and it was just, it was a dream come true. I thought about being a, an airline pilot since I was a little kid, and so now I'm out in Florida, and I'm away from all the chaos at home, and I'm flying, and yeah, it was it was fun.
0: During that time, obviously you're, you're talking about a profession, or an avocation even, where drinking is about as contrary to safety as possible, but What were you hearing within the training and within your curriculum and so forth about alcoholism or drug addiction? Was that part of any of the uh, training that went on?
1: No, in fact, it was kind of the opposite. It was kind of one of those deals where it was understood that you were not gonna show up to work hungover or drunk. That was something you do not do as a professional aviator Mm -hmm. and it's never okay and it's never gonna be joked about and it's never uh, gonna be approved. However, the minute you walk away from the airplane, it's on let's go drink and it just kind of went with the uh, bravado if you will or the persona of uh, it's a very it can be very stressful it's very complicated and when it's you're done flying what a great way to relieve stress by going to the bar and drinking and talking about flying that's what I did for four years in college
0: Mm -hmm. and your peers were doing the same Yeah.
1: Yeah. In fact, I joined a fraternity and it was just, you know, like any other fraternity, any other school with a lot of drinking, we just happened to fly airplanes Mm -hmm. uh, as well. Hmm.
0: It's interesting that you say all the pressure and everything else of the job. Lots of jobs have pressure, but to be in that kind of environment where you can justify your behavior by what happened during the day at work.
1: Yeah, it definitely went hand-in-hand, but it was just from the minute I showed up, and you know, a a big function of that too is being in school in Daytona Beach, right? There's always some, there's always an excuse to go to the beach and drink in Daytona. There's, it's never ending. So it all just kind of went hand-in-hand right from the start.
0: So you were a party guy who was training to become an airline pilot, and that was your ultimate goal. That was it, yeah, from the start. Did you ever consider the fact that you were drinking too much during that entire time?
1: No, no. In my teens and 20s, it never really dawned on me, uh, the path that I was going down, even though, again, I'd been told my entire life, be careful because you carry this gene, right? Your family tree is riddled with alcoholism.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, No, it just never really dawned on me. Did you ever get in trouble over your drinking? I got arrested one time um, after my senior year of college. I was back in Houston and uh, me and a friend went downtown and had too much to drink and he decided to drive home, and I was a passenger in the car. He got pulled over, he got a DUI, and I got arrested for public intoxication. Got to spend the night in Houston City Jail. Not one of my finer moments.
0: Was that, was that the first time that you'd ever been arrested? Yeah,
1: that was it, and that was the only time. But I did have to explain that years later in um, my first airline interview. They asked about it mm-hmm. again. Culture is you're going to drink on your days off, but if it starts affecting you, you can't bring it to work, right? You can't bring this problem with you. Uh, into the airplane or the cockpit. My very first interview, they asked about it. Um, and right from the right from the start, I was having to explain it away. It's just, no, it's just one bad decision one night, and I'm not going to be like that at work, and you don't have to worry about it. And they ended up hiring me, but yeah, I had to explain it away.
0: It occurs to me that you probably weren't the first person who was... Con- they were concerned about. Right. Yeah, no, I doubt it. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of an occupational hazard, only because if you stay drunk long enough, you can take it right into the next day, can't you?
1: Well, and I remember the interviewer's question saying, you know, are you going to get like this on an overnight where I have to come bail you out of jail when you're supposed to be going to fly the airplane? You know, I just told him it was a bad, bad decision, which it was, and I won't do that again, and please hire me.
0: So you're a guy who's able to drink quite a bit. You're able to go out and get drunk. You're able to hang out with your friends at the beach. You don't really have anything really negative, no negative consequence, and nothing goes drastically wrong at any point in your life to this time. It sounds like a really pretty happy existence.
1: Yeah, I mean, you said it. was just I never faced any consequences other than feeling terrible, you know? Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I'd never had any huge negative repercussions from it in my early years.
0: So feeling terrible from the hangovers can just be like having hay fever when you think about it. It's just something you wake up with every day and you deal with it and then you move on. Right. And I would usually drink more to get over it. <laughs> right. So did it impair you at any place along the way?
1: No. I just noticed as I got older, it started getting worse, probably from the amount that I was drinking. And my recovery time was mm-hmm. taking longer. And it was taking a toll on me. I, wasn't, I didn't want to go do as much stuff as I wanted to do because I was spending so much time recovering from the night before.
0: How about drugs? did they ever enter the picture? No,
1: I dabbled a little bit with marijuana in my high school years. Um, It was never really my thing. It just made me tired. Mm -hmm. Drugs were definitely prevalent when I was younger. Um, I had some friends go down that road, but to tell you the truth, it always scared me. And I just, I was offered cocaine one time and said no, and that was it. It was never an option for me because I do get random urinalysis at work. They check for all that stuff. And it always terrified me to go and pee hot and lose my job.
0: Yeah. So knowing that you'd face a random urinalysis was enough incentive not to engage in anything.
1: Yeah. And it just wasn't around with the crowd that I hung out with because we're all pilots and flight attendants and we all get tested. And so it just was never a thing for us, you know.
0: So your culture was adjusted to the rigors of the job.
1: Right. We could drink, but we just couldn't do any drugs. And so we were all okay with that.
0: So you got out of the four-year program. You had a degree. What occurred next for you? So
1: I graduated uh, from flight school right after 9-11 and there were no jobs. And so I moved home uh, to Houston back in to my parents' house. Mm -hmm. And I was flight instructing, uh, building hours, teaching people how to fly and um, building time that way. And I bounced around for two years doing various flight instructing jobs. And then I got hired onto my first airline Mm -hmm. and moved to Denver. And so moved to Colorado in 2004. Um, That's where I met my wife. She was a flight attendant Mm -hmm. at the same airline. So we're kind of that cliche couple. We just got randomly assigned to fly together one month. And I was a new first officer slash co-pilot. And her and her best friend um, were flying together that month. And we flew the entire month together and had a great time. And we became really good friends and started dating after that.
0: That's cool. So how long after you guys met, did you get married? Uh, three years. It would have been three years later. Now you mentioned earlier that she was your drinking buddy.
1: Yeah. And she, you know, she could kind of take it or leave it. But at that stage of our lives, in our early 20s, a bunch of young pilots and flight attendants. I mean, that's what we did. We'd again kind of going back to the flight school thing. We'd go fly airplanes all day. And then the minute we got to the hotel, let's change clothes and go to a bar, or go out to a restaurant. And then on our weekends, it was just one big party.
0: what a glamorous lifestyle
1: yeah Yeah, it was it was exciting it was fun and we were you know kind of all caught up in it and it was yeah it was it was all fun
0: and games until it wasn't why would anybody want to stop drinking if they were having that kind of fun right so the airlines made a comeback post 9-11 somewhere along the way how did that affect you
1: yeah, so the airline started hiring a bunch in 04 and 05, and everything was going great. Uh, we got married in 2008, and then everything kind of stopped again. Mm-hmm. The airlines all merged, the economy tanked, and then they changed the retirement age from 60 to 65. And so all the hiring kind of stopped for a little bit. So I spent a few more years at the regional airline that I was at. I was ready to get out and move on, mm-hmm. but none of the major airlines were hiring. And so in that time, we were living in Denver, and... Um, having a great time. My son, our first uh, born was, uh, he came along 2012, turned 10 last week, and we were living in Denver, and my wife's from San Antonio, and I'm from Houston. And when he was born, we both kind of decided that, you know, it was hard raising kids away from everybody, and especially for my wife, because she's going to be at home now for three to four days a week by herself with this baby and no help. Mm. And so we moved back to Houston in 2013. So I got hired in 2014, mm-hmm. and then we had two more kids, my daughters, in uh, 2015, and then one more in 2018.
0: Okay, so you have a 7-year-old and a 4-year-old? Yeah, it's good math. Yep.
1: 10, 7, and 4.
0: <laughs> yeah. What kind of challenges does the work life of a pilot and a flight attendant create. Well,
1: it was fun at first when we were, you know, we had no kids and no responsibilities. We had bid to fly together and it was great. We got paid basically to just go on vacation every week and we'd go all over the country. Um, and then, of course, reality starts setting in. You start having kids and you can't go do this job. She was not a flight attendant for very long. She quit, I think, after three or four years.
0: Uh, did she stay home with the your firstborn?
1: She did. She got a, uh, a job actually working out of the house. She moved over to the corporate real estate. Uh, corporate housing industry, and so she was working out of the house uh, when her first two were born, which is really what she always wanted to do. And then she quit a few years ago to be full-time stay-at-home mom. Uh, just kind of the challenges of being a single mom half the week while your husband is out traveling around doesn't really lend itself to a full-time career plus being a full-time
0: mom. What does that mean for you when you came home from your your half a week of work? What do you mean? Well, I mean. When my kids were young uh, and my wife was a stay-at-home mom, there were certain times during the week where I'd get home and no sooner had the garage door closed than she was handing me the little ones. Here, I'm out of here.
1: Well, and that's like the biggest airline pilot joke, right, is number one, don't let your wife hear you whistle on your way to work. And then the second thing is you know that you're going to get the baby with the dirty diaper the minute you walk in the door because she's exhausted, right? And that's just kind of the way it goes. It can be difficult, and especially when I was drinking and I would come home and have multiple little kids, well, now it's my weekend. And I may have flown Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and now I'm off Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And she'd be like, well, why are you drinking at noon on a Tuesday? And I'd be like, but it's my weekend. Always kind of justify right? why I'm drinking this much now on my days off. It got to the point where... She needed a break, and she would be stressed out, but I'm not really offering too much help because I'm more interested in drinking now and wanting to not do anything, right? Because I've earned my days off now, so to speak, and I just want to sit around and drink and leave me alone, Hmm. you know? And did she? Um, Sometimes, usually not. Mm -hmm. You know, usually it was I need more help with the kids, and I was present and helpful to a point until I wasn't, right? Typically right around bath time, and I would just... Be gone, right? I would just—I would be physically present, but absolutely no help. Mm-hmm.
0: Was that behavior that—that that was consistent during the number of years? I think it got worse over time.
1: I think when my son, when we just had the one, I was pretty hands-on, and then my second was born. It, my drinking kept getting worse, and we had more kids at the same time, so we're getting busier but my drinking now is getting to the point where I'm really not helping out and I really didn't want to. I really just wanted to sit around and do nothing and really wasn't a lot of help. I don't I didn't do a lot of the bath time. I didn't do a lot of the reading and stuff like that. It was kind of just me sitting in my chair watching her do a lot of work. How did you justify that? How did the drinking
0: justin justify that?
1: I think it was just kind of how I was raised. That's what I saw is like, I go to work, I make money. And when I come home, I'm going to sit on my butt and I'm going to drink my beer and you're a stay-at-home mom. So take care of the kids.
0: So the pattern repeats itself from like father, like son.
1: Right. Yeah. The pattern that I hated now shown up in my life.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo. A first edition big book wearing headphones and we 're back When you look back at grandparents and, and other people in the family was were they like your dad or, or like your mom along the way, or was there alcoholism that you knew of
1: yeah, there's definitely alcoholism on my dad's side, yeah. um, my dad, my uncle, my grandfather uh, my mom's side they 're all to this day very heavy drinkers i don 't know that I could diagnose them as alcoholics, but I mean there 's alcohol on both sides heavily. Mm. But it was always the culture of work hard, play hard, right? Yeah. And I'm going to pay my bills, and I'm going to go to work, and I'm going to be responsible. But then on my days off, it's on, right? And that's kind of how I was raised, and that was the pattern that I was continuing.
0: Enjoy this great lifestyle that I've created by virtue of working and making money. Exactly, yeah. Why do you want anything else from me? Look,
1: you know, I've got you a house, and I've got you everything else, and you should just be happy with all of this,
0: right? Hmm. So she starts at some point, three, four years ago, was it, that she started to really zero in on your drinking as problematic to the marriage. Right. When did that happen? Yeah, I don't remember exactly, right? It wasn't like
1: all of a sudden we just woke up one morning. It just kind of started being something that we talked about a lot. Yeah. Kind of something. It was always what we fought about, how much I drank, what I had said when I was drinking, the way I acted, whatever. Uh, it just started we, it started dominating our marriage, uh, my, my drinking.
0: Do you think she was buying what you were saying, though, about you'd cut back or you'd, you'd participate more, whatever it was you were telling her to justify?
1: I think that she wanted to believe it, and then after a while she was like, whatever, I've heard this same song and dance before, right? Because I had tried so many different things, and I think she just got to the point where she had just given up hope. What were some of the things you tried? Dry January, uh, not drinking liquor, only drinking light beer, not drinking during the weekdays, only drinking on the weekends and taking time off and all that kind of stuff that we do, right? Setting rules in place and only buying one six-pack of beer instead of keeping the refrigerator stocked with beer so I could only drink six, right? And, uh, yeah, just a bunch of different rules that never ended up working long-term. It
0: sounds like your pattern of drinking, too, didn't support not drinking when you got off because you would have been drinking in the evenings where you were flying, right? I actually didn't drink that much at
1: work there towards the end because I was always terrified of getting into trouble. Um, and so what I would do is I had all kinds of crazy rules in place, and I had told my wife that I wasn't going to be drinking at work. And so I never wanted her to call and me be at a bar or at a restaurant or something and hear to my voice because she could always tell. sure. So I would do stuff like, you know, I'd go buy beer, but then I would wait till I talked to her and said goodnight, And then I would drink him as fast as possible. So it'd be out of my system by the next morning. Mm-hmm. And it was just I had a ton of different checks in place. It was mentally exhausting. Yeah. Because I never wanted to show up hungover and be that guy you see on the news. Right. Um, so I was constantly setting alarms on my phone like, hey, if you stop now, you give yourself 12 hours. And it'll be out of your system. <laughs> It was chaos. A lot of work
0: being an alcoholic, isn't it? (laughs) It a lot of
1: work. It was truly mentally draining. Wow. And so I wouldn't drink that much. I wouldn't go out with the crews. I never really wanted to go out and have anybody see how, because I always wanted to drink a lot. And I didn't want to go to dinner with somebody that just had two glasses of wine because I would rather have zero than two. And I don't want to sit here and have five or six glasses of wine in front of this guy that I'm working with. And so I did a lot of my room and there a lot of my drinking in my room alone, my hotel room.
0: So when you were drinking on the road, it was isolated drinking when you were drinking at home.
1: Yeah, I had friends that I'd go out with and we'd go do stuff as couples. And most of it, though, was drinking by myself in my house because I had little kids at the time. Right. Right. And so I was never you know, I didn't leave the family to go to bars or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was mostly drinking by myself at my house.
0: Mm-hmm. What kind of effects did you notice on the kids when you were drinking?
1: I don't know. They were so young still. You know, my son, he was uh, eight whenever I got sober. And so he was like six and seven when we were kind of really getting Mm -hmm. when it was getting bad. And I just don't I don't know. I don't know that he noticed me. and My wife had one really big fight right before I quit drinking. And um, I remember him asking if we were going to get a divorce. And that hit me really hard because that had been my childhood. And I had always promised myself I was not going to raise my kids in the same house that I grew up in. Yeah. And now my little boy's asking me if me and mom were going to get a divorce over my drinking.
0: So your parents stayed married.
1: They actually ended up divorcing years later. So he got really bad over time. There were multiple suicide attempts. He shot himself uh, one night, but he survived and had a ton of facial reconstruction mm. and was in so much pain. They described him, I mean, God knows how many pain medications. Yeah. And so then he just basically swapped alcohol for opioids and became a pill addict. And so then my mom finally hit her breaking point. Even years after that, you know, she was always trying to fix him and get him better. And she never really gave up hope until he had wrung every last ounce of compassion out of her. And so they ended up divorcing, I think, when I was... 33, 34. Mm -hmm. He just kept getting worse after that. Couldn't hold a job at that point. He had no friends, started running out of money, and um, we got a phone call one night that they had found him dead in his
0: apartment, Mm. and that was it. Wasn't a big surprise, I guess, with what was going on.
1: No, in fact, I hate to even say it, it was a relief, you know, because he had, over the course of maybe 20 years, tried to kill himself. Three times, and on the fourth time, he was finally successful. And I just watched him get worse and worse over time, and more and more withdrawn. You know, once he got addicted to the pills, it was like talking to a zombie. He was either asleep or he was manic, and he was constantly doctor shopping, and he was very stressful to be around.
0: Was he around when your kids were
1: born? He met my son and my middle daughter, and he died. Uh, when my middle daughter was about nine months old. Mm. Yeah. And that was really kind of, you know, it's ironic. The very thing that caused him all of his problems, that was what I turned to after he killed himself. Yeah. Was that was really back in 2015. That was really when my drinking started getting way out of control. Um, I had all these emotions and thoughts connected with his death and Unresolved childhood trauma and stuff that I wanted to say that I was never going to get to say. And there was a lot of anger and hostility.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I started drinking more, you know. So, what was your relationship like with him at that point when you started drinking more? It was to the point where
1: he was just like, I kind of treated him like a crazy uncle. Like, oh. you know, you're welcome to come over to the house only on this, you know, you can come over this day at this time mm. and then you got to leave. And He would just be manic, and he would, you know, he came over multiple times when my kids were little, and he'd be sitting there talking, and you look over, next thing he's just passed out on the couch. That's sad. And your kids are running around like, what's wrong with Grandpa Jeff? And it was just, it it got to the point where it was too much work to be around. Yeah. And I needed to focus on my wife and kids, and he was taking up too much of my time, basically, and I just didn't have anything left to give him.
0: So all that's going on at the same time that your drinking is ramping up. To the point at which your wife has finally had enough. Right. Yeah. Well, and she, you know, she had her
1: father-in-law to look to you like, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to end up exactly like your dad, you know, and, and she just hit her breaking point.
0: Yeah. Did you get that at some point along the way? Did you see yourself ending up like your dad if you didn't stop? Well, that was my biggest fear,
1: right? Oh, yeah. Is that as I watched him slowly
0: deteriorate and kind of go down the drain,
1: he started out extremely smart, great job, a lot of friends, great marriage, making good money. He had everything that he wanted and then slowly but surely started losing it all Mm -hmm. because he refused to do anything about his drinking. Mm -hmm. And I started looking at myself and I was about the same age that he was whenever he started getting bad. Mm -hmm. I was getting the same warnings from my wife that he got from his. Mm -hmm. I was starting to worry about my job. I was starting to worry about my health and it was truly eye-opening. I can remember laying there in the mornings, I would wake up so hungover, just feeling that anxious, trembling, and like, you know, what did I do last night? And just thinking to myself, you're going to end up exactly like your dad.
0: History repeating itself, so to speak, huh?
1: Right. Right, yeah. It was my biggest fear. And then when my wife vocalized, you're turning into your dad, yeah. and somebody else could see it in me. I'm like, man, she's right.
0: So this brings us up to the point at which she puts you out on the street.
1: Yeah. 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 So during the pandemic, that was really my, the last straw, uh, in, uh, May of 2020. Um, I wasn't flying because nobody was going to the airports and they were grounding airplanes and parking flights. And so I had nothing to do, but drink Mm -hmm. and worry and stress out. Am I going to lose my job? And what am I going to do to make an income? And it just got to the point where she had had enough. Mm. We took a lake trip Mm -hmm. and uh, my family's lake house and I was just out of control the entire time, driving the boat while drinking with kids Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And um, we got back to the house after one of these long weekends and I was unloading the car and decided I'd just have a few drinks while I was unloading the car. And we'd fought about my drinking the entire drive home and she came out and lost it. Mm -hmm. And she said, I can't believe that you're drinking You've got to do something to control your drink. We got in a huge fight that night. That was when she, uh, she poured a beer on my head and mm. said, you know, she was trying to get rid of it. That was when my son saw us fighting and asked if we were going to get a divorce.
0: Mm.
1: So then the next day, um, woke up. She wasn't really speaking to me. And she just said, will you go to HEB and pick up some groceries? Just do something productive. Mm-hmm. I need you to do something productive. I'm like, Okay, so I go to the store. And I'm mad and I'm hungover and everything else that's going through my mind. And I'm pushing the shopping cart around getting groceries and I go past the beer and wine aisle Mm -hmm. and just complete compulsion without even thinking about it. I see a truly right seltzer water with alcohol, grab one and put it in the basket, you know, thinking I'll drink this take the edge off and I'll go home and I'll be good for the rest of the day. So i go out in the parking lot. You know, it's like a Tuesday at 10 in the morning, slam this truly and stop at a gas station, throw it away, go home. We're emptying out the groceries. And I still to this day don't know why she did it. She's never done it before. And I don't think she's done it since, but she took out the receipt and looked at the receipt and she saw the truly on there and confronted me. And she said, you know, were you drinking at 10 o'clock in the morning? I said, you know, like a true alcoholic. No, I don't know how that got on there blatantly lying. I mean, you know, now I'm like a little kid with my hand in the cookie jar (laughs) and she started crying Mm. and she said, I need you to get out and I need you to do something about your drinking and you're not walking back in this house until you do. So I drove to my mom's house and she was at work. She works at an elementary school and, you know, I texted her, Hey, I just got kicked out of the house. Can I go to your house? She said, of course. Is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just in a huge fight. She's like, okay, go to the house. We'll talk about it whenever I get home. So we went over I'm at my mom's house now and it's like noon and I'm pissed mm-hmm. and I'm really angry and found a bottle of schnapps and just started drinking schnapps in my mom's house. My mom came home and by this time I was pretty well drunk. But, you know, this is during that eight months after I'd already had four months of sobriety. This is the culmination now. This is the end of me going back out and seeing how my drinking is going to go, right? Thinking I can handle it now. And this is where it's gotten me. I'm at my mom's house, complete mess. And my mom came in. And by the way, it was her birthday. This is the birthday present that I gave her on her birthday. And I just opened up to her and I said, mom, I'm an alcoholic. I'm just like dad. I cannot physically stop drinking. Mm-hmm. And she was, I think, surprised. You know, I'd never really talked to anybody about it except for my wife. And everybody kind of knew me as a big drinker, but I don't think anybody had seen how bad it had gotten. I wasn't really that vocal about it with anybody except for my wife. And mm-hmm. My mom just said, well, what are you going to do about it? You've got to do something. You can't be like your dad. Don't do that to your wife and kids. And so I, it was that night kind of in my drunken mess. I just decided I'm going to wake up tomorrow and call the union and ask for help. I cannot keep living, living like this. So I woke up the next morning, texted my wife, can I come home? She said, that depends. Do you have a plan? And I'm like, yeah, I need, we need to talk. Yeah. So I came home that morning and told her, I'm going to call the union and I'm going to go into this treatment plan. And she was, I think, relieved and terrified at the same time because she wasn't going to have to be accountable for me anymore. She wasn't going to have to watch over me and make sure I wasn't drinking. But the very first thing that you have to do in this program is you have to go to treatment. And so, you know, that was one of my biggest hangups is I don't want to go to rehab. Rehab was for celebrities and, like, rich kids with cocaine problems, and I don't need to go to rehab. What if the world found out that I went to treatment? That's so embarrassing, uh-huh. and that's what I thought. Uh, but I told her I'm like I I need something. I I can't keep doing what I'm doing. And I tried it on my own once, and I just this is like the nuclear button. Once I push this button, there's no going back. You can't talk your way out of this. So I called the union, and he was not surprised to hear from me again. I don't think because like I said, I'd called a few times. Uh, Before, And so he walks me through the entire process and he said, you know, I need you to tell me that you're asking for help so I can get it, you know, in on the record. Because once you do that, the FAA is going to revoke your medical. Right. Right. So to fly, I have to have a license that says I know how to operate the airplane. And then I also have to have a medical certificate that says I'm fit and healthy to fly. And one of the disqualifying diseases is alcoholism or addiction. Right. And so the minute that I said that, they revoked my medical license. And then the very next day, I was on an airplane to treatment. Wow. And so when I called called the union and said, hey, I need help, he said, great, pack your bags. I don't know if I want to go tomorrow. Can I go in like two or three weeks? I need to get some things in order. And he started laughing. He said, no, because you're going to change your mind. And then something bad could happen. Let's go now.
0: It's like what happens after an intervention. You're out the door that same day or the next day.
1: And it was terrifying and it was sad. And I went from this feeling of like relief, like, okay, the cat's out of the bag. The world knows I'm getting help. And like, here I go to now I'm like, just kind of depressed. Like, how did I end up here? Right? Yeah. And so I packed my bags and the next morning, I got a Uber to the airport at like five in the morning. And I just remember sitting in the back of that car, just crying. Like, this is the worst day of my life. I had all these warning signs from my childhood of what could potentially happen. And here I am leaving my wife and three young kids to go to rehab and uh, flew through Las Vegas. I had to change airplanes. When I got to Las Vegas, I had a phone call from my boss and he's a former Vietnam fighter pilot and he's in the program. Mm -hmm. And uh, he called and basically told me, hey, look, I just want you to know that I know what you're going through and I know that you think that this is probably the worst day of your life, but you're gonna look back as one of the best things that you've ever done for yourself and for your family. And when you're ready to come back to work, it was ready to have you. Wow. And it was amazing. That was the first, like, that day, you know, it started out so bad, and now this guy's giving me a little bit of hope, like, hey, maybe this could be a good thing. And just that one phone call kind of changed my spirits on the way to the treatment.
0: You must have had a real sense of relief.
1: Huge. Yeah, because I didn't want to—I've never liked getting in trouble. I don't like sticking my head up. And now here I am taking time off of work, and they're paying for me to go to treatment because they picked up the entire tab for everything. And— I have affirmation from him saying, no, this is exactly what you need to be doing, taking care of yourself and your family. And it was it was amazing. It was freeing. Do you still talk to him? Yeah, every month I check in with him.
0: So he's become more than just the guy you check in with. He's become a friend and a brother in the program. Yeah. And
1: I go into his office and I've told him multiple times, like, you know, that one phone call lifted my spirits more than you
0: can imagine. Sounds like it changed your life.
1: It did. It did. And that's exactly what I needed to go into treatment with. Like, hey, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. Maybe treat this as an opportunity to turn things around.
0: So how long were you in that program? I was in treatment for 30 days.
1: Uh, I will be in the monitoring program for a total of seven years. Yep. And so I'm two years in.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And what does the monitoring consist of?
1: So I did 30 days of treatment, and then um, I did IOP after that, and then I'm still doing aftercare. So I do aftercare weekly. That should drop off uh, any week now, about the two-year mark. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do random UAs. I get texts on my days off. I have to do 14 a year to make sure that I'm not drinking, and that will continue out for the next five years. I check in with my boss that I was just telling you about monthly. I check in. I have a special FAA doctor now that I I meet with quarterly um, in person, but then I also have to check in with him every month. And then I have an airline sponsor, if you will. So he's another pilot in the program just with more time than me. Check in with him monthly. I'm required to attend two AA meetings. And I think that's it. (laughs) That's a lot of accountability to a lot of people.
0: That's a lot of accountability. So when did you get your medical uh, license back? So I was out of work for nine months. And so
1: they revoked my medical. I did treatment and then IOP and aftercare. And then I had to meet with a psychologist Uh to ensure that I wasn't also suffering from depression or any of the other uh, ailments that go along with it, uh, that I wasn't suicidal Mm -hmm. or anything like that. And then I had to do a cog screen to make sure that I still had my um, technical abilities, if you will, to fly the airplane safely. And then once I did all that, we sent the paperwork off to the FAA, and I got it back a few months later. So it was a total of nine months that I was out of work.
0: And, of course, nowadays there's such a shortage of, of pilots, isn't there? Yeah, huge shortage. Huge. So they were glad to get you back, I'll bet.
1: Right. Yeah, and they welcomed me back with open arms. I was kind of afraid when I went into this that I was going to come back with a target on my back. And that's not been the case. Everybody's been super supportive. And most people don't know, you know, nobody at work that I work with on a weekly basis has any idea unless I tell them.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things you'll notice about the podcast once I'm done editing it is that I anonymize it pretty carefully. But people who know you, who know you in the program, will know it's you because they know you. And to them, you're not anonymous, obviously. Other people... Just the guy in the street probably not going to be tuning into it. I mean, why would they? But you said to me the other day when we were talking about doing this that you felt like you being able to tell your story could be helpful to the next guy. And in what way did you mean that?
1: Well, before I asked for help, there was just a huge stigma, right? Uh-huh. Again, I don't want the FAA, the huge, this huge government bureaucracy, I don't want them in my business because it's terrifying. As a pilot, they hold the keys to your career. And I didn't want to turn that power over, um, to somebody else. And so what that did was kept me stuck in my addiction for a really long time before I asked for help. Um, you can enter this program one of two ways. You can either ask for help or you can be forced into it. If you get a DUI over a certain BAC or you get multiple DUIs or something happens at work, they can force you into the program, Mm -hmm. but they take a much better view of you if you ask for help. Uh, They're much more willing to work with you if you go to them first before you get caught. Mm -hmm. And so you know, my advice for anybody out there that has any kind of uh, work program that they can take advantage of, for me it's been hugely beneficial. Like I said, they picked up the entire cost of treatment. Mm -hmm. Everybody that I've talked to has been incredibly supportive. So it's not just my guys in AA that I have. It's a whole host of people now at the FAA, at my company, that are there to help and we'll pick up the phone anytime I call. Um, And so it was a huge relief and also just um, living in integrity, right? I don't have to keep this a secret from anybody. I'm completely open and honest Mm -hmm. with my employer um, and that feels really good. I'm not worried about getting in trouble or them finding out anything, you know. So it's been a, a huge relief for me. Sounds like it. I can be the same person on the outside that I am on the inside, right? And that's finally for the first time uh, over these last few years. it's That's new for me.
0: Wow, that's got to be pretty incredible. A good good feeling.
1: Yeah, not keeping any secrets is, is amazing.
0: Yeah. So my understanding is that there are special pilot groups of AA out there, but the one thing that I noticed about you was you were, you were a, a pilot who could have been going to those kinds of groups exclusively, right? much like the doctors go to their own groups, some of the lawyers go to their own groups. But the best progress I've seen people in those professions make is when they get into the mainstream of AA. And I've noticed you, were, from the start, have really been kind of a mainstream AA guy. And I wanted to ask you, what was there about AA this time when you came in? After that treatment, how did you connect? How did it feel when you were sitting in meetings early on? Um,
1: yeah, so a few questions there so that we do have our own pilots group
0: uh-huh. and I've attended
1: it a few times um, and there's some really good sobriety there. Um, what I found though was there were uh, there's some people in those meetings that still maybe feel like they don't belong there like they ended up there against their own will they're not happy about it. Um, I, I did not like that vibe. That's
0: tough. Right? Yeah. Uh, th-
1: this time back around, um, one of my biggest hangups when I was in treatment is I was scared to come back to AA. I, I would be lying because I had tried it before and
0: mm-hmm. I didn't
1: think it worked because I didn't really give it a fair shot. I never really immersed myself in it. And I didn't know that when I was in treatment, I didn't really think about, well, d- you didn't really do the steps. You never really tried anything. Did they just-
0: bring AA in to you guys at all?
1: They did. And then I knew that I was going to be required to do 90 and 90. I was going to have to get a sponsor. And so when I was in treatment, I called my old sponsor and told him what was going on. Mm -hmm. And he was not surprised, right, that I was back. And he was happy for me and said, when you get back to Houston, give me a call. Let's get together. So when I came back, it was the middle of the pandemic. And he and I would meet in person and start going through the book and doing the steps in earnest. And it was like night and day. You know, I was fully into it this time. I was seeking this relief and I was looking for what he had and that freedom that I felt him radiating right so he's my second sponsor so I have a, another guy that I started that I work the steps with mm-hmm. and so it was during that time I was working the steps with him but I was attending these zoom meetings online and one of the guys on the meetings reached out and said hey I know that you're new there's some people getting together for fellowship we're going to get together at a barbecue and smoke cigars and hang out would you like to come join us? That was exactly what I needed because I'm sitting at home now during the pandemic with little kids. Yeah. And I'm in new sobriety with like 60 days. I have no idea what's going on. Kind of, feel, you know, I, I was feeling that new relief, but I was also terrified because now I've got this new life and I'm not drinking anymore. I've just gotten home from treatment uh-huh. and I'm not flying. And, oh, my gosh, I, you know, all my friends drink. I can't go hang out with them anymore. But these meetings Mm -hmm. aren't happening in person. Everything's on Zoom. Who am I? What am I going to do? And then one of the guys uh, that was at the meeting today extended his hand and said, hey, come hang out with us. And that opened the door to the fellowship Mm -hmm. and like the real solid AA that I found um, that I was that I desperately craved where I could be myself. I could be honest and open and I could find that true friendship that I've been looking for in drinking, right, that I never really had found. And so then that was how I met my sponsor now. And he had, you know, you can't hang out with a guy without wanting what he has. And he just radiates love and hope. And so I've been working with him for the last year and a half.
0: That's cool. So what impact did your second stint in AA have on your marriage and your family life?
1: Oh, my gosh. To say it's night and day, I mean, would be an understatement. You know, my, it's still a marriage. We still have disagreements. But it is nowhere close to how it was before, you know, before there was just a huge disconnect, right? Because I was drinking or recovering from drinking 99% of the time, and it was making my wife crazy. And now I'm present. And you know, she says things to me, she's very, she number one, she's tells me she's grateful all the time, and how happy she is. And she's fully supportive of the program. And I spend a lot of time on my program, I go to work, mm-hmm three days a week at least, sometimes four, and then I, I've gotta hit at least two to three meetings a week to feel like myself. So it's more time gone from home after I've been gone flying. And she's always supportive, you know, cause I think that she likes the results that I get from the meetings and I carry that home now. And you know, I'm more engaged as a husband, I'm more engaged as a dad, you know, and that's really the true gift is I'm here for myself to save my own life, you know, don't get me wrong. I've tried getting sober for other people and it, it didn't work. Uh, when I got sober for myself, it finally clicked and everybody else kind of gets the payoff. But my home life is just, it's, you know, it's incredible. And it, again, we are married. We do have yeah, little kids, sure. it's very stressful, but I'm not making—I'm not bringing any added stress to the situation. Well, any now. guy
0: that can get to three meetings a week with little kids at home, I, when my kids were small, as often as I would try to get to meetings I wasn't going to anywhere near as many as I do these days, but right. still four, if I could, four, maybe sometimes five meetings a week, only because I could get away at noon. My job was such that I could schedule my meetings into my schedule. When you're flying and you're in other places, do you have the opportunity to go to meetings elsewhere? Do you ever do that?
1: I have, yeah. I've, got, I've hit meetings in maybe eight or ten different cities that I can think of off, since I've been back to work for this last year. Uh, And that's always great, you know, because you walk in and they're reading the same book and it's the same solution. And it doesn't matter if I'm in San Francisco or New York and you hear a lot of the same stories from different people. And there's something truly liberating about that. And plus they always make you feel really welcome, right? When you're a visitor.
0: It's immediate fellowship in the city. I mean, when I travel and I go to AA meetings in other cities, I feel more welcome in a part of the place I'm visiting. Whenever there's a visitor from somewhere else, people are always glad to see him and want to know more about him and that sort of thing. And Especially when you go back to the same meeting multiple times when you're back in that same city, and people say, man, it's so good to see you. Yeah, I mean, it's just fantastic. And I've always been impressed with your smile and your very upbeat demeanor, and I never would have guessed that you've gone through what you've gone through. I can see why you exude the kind of satisfaction, contentment, happiness. Yeah, no, thank you for that. What what best describes it? Yeah, thank you for saying it. I mean, it's just, that's been the...
1: You know, there's so many gifts that I've gotten from recovery. You know, one of the gifts that I've been given now is I don't regret my past. I was at a meeting with you a week or two ago, and the topic was sometimes our really terrible pasts are the best gifts that we can give to our family. I love that passage because my past is far from perfect, and it was extremely chaotic, and it was very traumatic growing Mm. up in the house that I grew up and watching my dad Spiral out of control. But at the same time, it kind of was like a sneak preview, Hmm. if you will, to my 39 year old self. Like, hey, dude, you can choose right now. You can choose to go down that path and have that life and have your kids think of you the same way that you think of your dad. Or you can go down this other path. And so, truly, I feel still with two years, I still feel like I've been just released. been given this gift now that I don't have to keep repeating this pattern. I don't have to keep passing on this trauma. I don't have to keep handing down what I was given. Mm. And it's truly liberating. It's freeing. And that's what keeps me coming back to meetings. And it's what gets me excited about working with the new guys. There's hope. And there's always a possibility for a better life out there if you're willing to do the work. And that's what I found the second time around is that the first time in, I just wanted to quit drinking, yeah. and it didn't work. And this time, I, I do the work, and I find the relief. Yeah,
0: and that makes all the difference in the world. You mentioned about other guys. I know that you were, and you told me because I asked you if you were available to be a sponsor because I know you've worked all 12 steps now. Right. Have you sponsored anybody just yet? I do, yeah. I've taken one guy all the way
1: through, and then um, and the guy that you set me up with, we're on step two right now. How great is that? And so, yeah, <laughs> it's a, you know, and that... I've had sponsees come and go, Mm -hmm. right? And I learn a lot from them because I was that guy. So I try not to judge, right? Because that's what I did. I came in and then I left. And so I'm here if they want to come back. But uh, the sponsee that I took all the way through from steps one to now watching him sponsor somebody else, I mean, how amazing is that, you know? And not even two years to be able to pass that on and see the change in his life. It's truly a gift, you know, to have him allow me to be a small part of that, and to be able to, you know, see this thing grow even by one member, it's, it's amazing.
0: And it's amazing when you stop and look at the people who your sponsees are sponsoring and the progress that they're making, knowing that it can be probably traced back to you. But that legacy is such a neat thing in AA to be able to see the impact that it's having on other men.
1: Well, and I try not to let my ego get in the way, right? Because, I mean, if they want it bad enough, they'll find anybody to sponsor them. And so I try not to get to that point, like, I'm so great, and you could only do it with me. Mm-hmm. But there is that sense of like, you know, it takes a lot of work to get guys through the steps. And it's a lot of time and it's a lot of sacrifice to sponsor somebody. But the first time that I sat down and opened up that book with a new guy, and I was nervous, like, man, I'm gonna mess this guy up. And I hope nothing that I do makes him go and drink. And then as you get more comfortable and that relationship starts to form, you realize, you know, like I was told, there's nothing that I can say to keep him sober or make him drink. I'm just a mouthpiece that, God has put me in front of this guy to work with, and all I have to do now is do what was done with me. Let's just read the book page by page and talk every day. And it's it's been really great for my program. It's really kept me motivated. When they call me or we meet up, all I have to do is think, well,
0: what my sponsor say in this situation? And you can call him right? up, right? And you can find out. The right... <laughs> and I do frequently. <laughs> I bet you do. I do. And I don't think I've ever asked anybody this particular question, but you know, you've, you've gained a lot of wisdom in a very short amount of time. You've gained a number of the gifts, but it's a period of time in which you've done the work. Knowing what you know now about your life, about sobriety, about the gifts, about what AA could mean to somebody, if you had the opportunity to go back and talk to your dad
1: mm. at a
0: point at which he might have been willing to listen, what would you say to that man that might have made a difference in his life?
1: Well, um, you know, when I went to treatment, one of the very first things that they did was they asked me about my family of origin, and I went through all the stuff that I had gone through, and uh, the guy looked at me and asked if I ever talked to anybody about it or ever worked through any of that, and if, my answer was no. I had never met with anyone, and I just had nothing but hatred for this man. I mean, I, I loathed him. I was relieved when he finally died.
0: Yeah, you said that.
1: Being in recovery now makes me realize um, he wasn't a bad guy. He was very sick, and he could never see it. Uh, and he was never willing to. He had been to treatment multiple times. Um, I don't know 100, percent but I'm can almost be certain that he went to a few AA mm-hmm. meetings. He at least knew that we existed, but he could never see it in himself. Um, if I could sit down with him, you know, and go back, you know. Wow. Just that, you know, it, it's difficult because nobody can you can't help anybody unless they want to help themselves. And he never wanted to help himself. And so how do you have the conversation with somebody that doesn't want to change? Uh, and if I could go back now to your sober and talk to him about, you know, here's the deal. This is how it works. It's not that terrifying. Hmm. You just have to admit that you're an alcoholic and you have to start doing the work, and come meet all of my friends and see the way they live their lives, mm. and see all these miracles that I see every day, and look at all these families that have stayed together. Yeah. Um. That's what I would say. You know, I, I would show him by example, and that's what works for me. That's why I, I keep coming to meetings. It's because you don't have to tell me that it works. I can see that it works. Yeah. In you and other guys mm. in the meetings. Um. It's difficult though because you know all that to be said, I don't know if I'd be sitting here. What if he was still alive and still an active alcoholic and he hadn't lost everything? Would I still be drinking? I don't know. I just, you know, and so I'm careful to not go back and change history too much.
0: Yeah, I get that. But what you just said, it fits perfectly with everything else you've said today, that you can't get them drunk. You can't keep them sober. All you can do is carry the message and the message that you've shared with me today is brilliant. Somebody somewhere out there is going to hear this and it will make a difference in their life. And to me, that's the beautiful thing about doing these interviews is because you and I don't know who that's going to be. Right. But there will be one or more people who are touched by your story. I can't thank you enough for doing this, man. This- yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I, I listen to this podcast weekly at work and it, it what a
1: great way to get to know people in the program that I see in the rooms and go to meetings with, but we don't have time to go sit down and meet to learn their entire story. It's been such a great way for me to to learn their, these other stories in the rooms. It's been
0: wonderful so. for me too. And I look forward to ongoing friendship and brotherhood with you in the program and that I love you and you're a great example of short-term, well-worked sobriety.
1: Wow. Thank you, Howard. I'm glad that you say that it's short-term because there's still a lot of A lot of times where I feel like I should have this situation figured out and I don't yet. And it gives me relief to know that, yes, two years is still very short. I still have a lot to learn.
0: Yeah, and I'll tell you what, even when you've learned a lot, there's still more. There's always going to be as much in front of you as there is right now. But it always amazes me. I say, man, I've been sober so long, I should know this. Well, no, that's why we talk (laughs) about practicing the principles. We'll never get to the perfection part of the program think that this has just been wonderful. So thank you again. Thank you, Howard. Thanks for your service. This has been great. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Justin M., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to all my interviews by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every episode, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.